Hey, uh, our kids, you can go ahead and slide out to Redemption Kids. We've got our workers in the back there that can point you to the way. Hey, if you're new with us and you've got a child that's fifth grade and under and, and you haven't checked them in, in yet, you can just follow, follow our volunteers, our children, our volunteers, and they'll show you um, how to best get your child uh, connected and served in with Redemption Kids. And then for the rest of us, hey, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word or turn on whatever device you're using. If you want to grab a Bible, we've got some in the back. Our ushers can help you grab those. We're going to be today in Psalm 22. So if you've got one of the Bibles that we provide, that'll be on page 457. Psalm 22. This is the third Psalm that, um, that in our True and Greater series. We looked at Psalms 1 and 2 together, um, and then last week was Psalm 16 Today we're going to be in Psalm 22. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is John Chastine. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill Church. I'm also the Medford Site Director for Soccer Nights. Anybody excited about some Soccer Nights this week? Pumped. Man, I'm glad to have a number of our teams that are coming in and serving with us. And, and then just many of you guys. Man, it's going to be a fun week. Not just serving our community, but serving together. I'm looking forward to spending some time with you guys Hope for it. Hope you're, you're looking forward to that as well. But hey, as you turn to Psalm 22, I just want to share with you a little bit more about my spiritual journey. I think many of you know this, but I grew up as a pastor's kid. And so, man, from early on, I, I grew up in the local church. I'm grateful for parents that taught me the scriptures at a young age. Um, as a part of being a part of a local church, I was a part of a program um, a Bible memorization program. Was anybody, I, I was a part of something called Awanas. Anybody here like in a, grew up in a church with a pretty strong Bible memory program? A few hand, I see a few hands there. Okay, so I, I had a really great memory. Um, and I, I love memorizing things. I didn't always connect the dots. Um, but man, I had memorized hundreds of verses. In fact, I progressed in Awana to the point of, of getting the Timothy Award. I think that's one of the highest like awards that you can get. And it, it's really, it's, it's God's grace. We're singing about it. Um, but here's the deal. These Bible verses for me were, were hundreds of puzzle pieces in my mind. But at the time, I had no clue, or I would say this, maybe I had minimal clue how any of them were connected together. In fact, I'm not even sure I knew that all these verses I were memorizing were actually putting together the picture of a puzzle. It wasn't until later on, particularly in college, that, that God in his spirit and worked in a great way in my life where, man, I just started reading the Bible um, with a desire to know God. I just wanted to pursue him. And as I read through it, I came across many of those verses that I had memorized. But here's what happened. The dots started connecting. Here's a few scriptures that really just, man, just, man, God was just blowing my mind with what was happening here. One was in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees, and he says this, You search the Scriptures because you think that is in them you find eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Now, what do those Scriptures refer to? He's, at that time, all we had was the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, you're searching the Old Testament. You think you find eternal life in them, but it's the Old Testament that's about me. 
that blew my mind. The Old Te- I had never read Jesus' word. Like, I'd never seen Jesus' name in the Old Testament. You guys ever seen it in there? Like, you read through it. You meant The Old Testament is about Jesus? He continues on in John 5. He goes later on in John 5, verse 46. He says this. He says, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses, referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, the first five books there. Jesus is saying, Moses wrote about me. Now, I've, I've never seen Jesus' name in the law, but so this was like mind-blowing. In college, as I started reading and I'm seeing this, what happened was I saw that all these hundreds of puzzle pieces were actually being fit together to portray a beautiful image. And it was, it was the story of God's redemption of what he was doing in Jesus Christ. Say, man, why am I starting off our sermon this way? Here's the deal. We've got a number of books in the Bible by a number of different authors. But in one sense, there is one divine author overseeing all the scriptures so that from the very beginning, Genesis 1 to Revelation, there is a consistent and coherent story of what God's doing. There's, it, I grew up thinking, even as a pastor's kid, you got like plan A, that didn't work, now you got plan B. There's a consistent story here that God is trying to portray from the beginning to end. And this changes everything about how we read the Old Testament. You see, I, I don't read the Old Testament anymore as if Jesus hasn't come. Because Jesus has come, and he says, they are about me. So I share that with you as we start Psalm 22. And even this whole series, The True and Greater, the reason we've labeled it that is because Psalm 22 isn't just about David. As we see what Jesus is saying, we see there's something so much larger going on that I want us to look in today. So... Let's, uh, let's, let's read through Psalm 22, and let's pray that God would give us minds and ears, hearts to hear and to receive and to understand his word. Psalm 22, verse 1. This is, you'll see in the superscription there, the, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. This, uh, of, the, of the first book of the Psalter, 1 through 41, almost all of them, a reference to David. It's as if the, the Psalms here, they're, they're looking at the life of David, but, but David is being held up, as we're going to see later on, as, as pointing to a greater David, King Jesus, who was to come. So a Psalm of David, beginning in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I... 
I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will be perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations all the prosperous of the earth, eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Father, would you help us to hear and receive these words as your words? And God, would you show us how you are preparing us for the true and greater David, the true and greater sacrifice, the true and greater sufferer who's laid down his life that we might embrace Christ today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think you caught that picture of what's going on here. You've got David in the midst of suffering, and then you have this back and forth battle, him crying out, my enemies are around me, they are pursuing me, and then contrasted with that is, is trust that of what God has done in the past, and, and a crowd in prayer, God would you deliver, and would you save, and then there's a shifting point about midway, 
And then you see David erupting in confidence that God has answered, even to the point of the nations worshiping in light of God's deliverance. Here's the point of my sermon and the point of the text that I want you to see today. It's this. David's suffering points to a true and greater sufferer whose sacrifice enables global worship. David's suffering points to a true and greater sufferer whose sacrifice enables global worship. As we think about that, there's three just kind of sub-points that I want to lay out to you today, and the first one is this. As, as we see David crying out for deliverance and salvation, today we should find our salvation in the true and greater sacrifice. Let me just go back. I want to walk through David's experience, and then I'm going to look forward, and we're going to talk about this true and greater, greater David. First, we see here David's experience is summarized with abandonment and anguish. Go back in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have a series of questions here. Why have you forsaken me, God? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? I cry out. You don't answer. Where are you, God? This might even be your cry today. I don't know what's brought you here today. But, but on the inside, this may be what you're thinking. God, you're not near. My prayer is the same prayer as David. Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why have, why have you not heard or responded to my words, to my groaning? Jump on down to verse 6. Here's how he describes his abandonment and anguish here. He says, man, I'm even below mankind. I'm a worm. That's how I feel right now in light of the suffering that I'm experiencing. I'm less than human. Look, I'm scorned. I'm despised. I'm mocked. They're wagging their heads at me. They're saying all kind of things with their mouths at me. They're mocking me saying this. He trusts in the Lord. Let, let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him. David, you're the one who's talked so great about how, God, how good God is. Where is he now, David? Jump on down to verse 12. He, he picks it back up. He describes his enemies this way. They're like bulls that are encompassing me, strong bulls. They're, imitate, they're intimidating me. He describes them like lions. They've opened wide their mouths at me like a, like a roaring lion. The same imagery that Peter describes the devil in 1 Peter is like a roaring lion. We know all, all this su suffering and persecution behind it is that evil one, the devil. Jump on forward to verse 16. He, he talks about bulls, he talks about lions, and he talks about dogs for dogs encompass me a company of evil doers encircles me they have pierced my hands and feet fierce powerful let me make a quick comment on they have pierced my hands and feet you may if you're if you're in the ESV you may see a little footnote at the bottom that says some manuscripts like a lion 
they are at my hands and feet. There's debate over whether this word actually means pierced or, or something more like they were gnawing at my hands and feet. Pierced sounds a lot like what? The cross. And so it'd be tempting to think that that's probably what it means there, and it's a possible, but what we see is the Gospels don't explicitly quote this. And it'd have been an easy one to quote, talking about the looking forward to the crucifixion of Christ. So most likely, it's not the word pierce here, but gnawing, but the picture is, is of a dog who's is trapped his hands and feet, and he's helpless, is what he's crying out. I'm helpless. I can't even defend myself. And then he describes his anguish like this in verse 14. Go back to verse 14. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, is melted within my breath. My breast. The impact of alienation has, has impacted just the inner deep being of, of who he is. My heart has melted. My strength is dried up like potsherd. herd. Sherds are pieces of broken pottery. He says, my stung ticks, sticks to my jaws. Ba you lay me in the dust of death. Basically, he's crying out, man, unless something changes, death is imminent. In fact, in verse 18, they've already divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Some of you may say this describes my experience right now. I'm forsaken by God. I don't sense his presence. Let me just take a little sidebar real quick here, and I want to talk about depression, something that maybe we don't talk often about in the church. Ed Welch, in his little book on depression, says this, how can I do anything when I don't feel anything. I, in other words, I don't feel God's presence, so what do I do? Most people do things because they feel like doing them, he says. They get up in the morning because they feel like going to work. Or they feel like avoiding the boss's questions when they are late. Or they feel like avoiding poverty. But in depression, you don't feel, or whatever you do feel isn't going to motivate you to do anything profitable. In depression, this is what you feel. It's more likely you feel like dying, crying, running, disappearing, and avoiding. This might be you today. How can feeling-driven people set goals, have purpose, or get motivated when they don't feel? Maybe you've said, I don't feel God's presence, so why would I take a step towards him? He's not there. I haven't felt anything when I've read the word. It hasn't come alive for me. Ed Welch says the answer is this. You will have to learn another way to live. And he gives this illustration. He says, you'll have to be like the woman whose muscles, don't catch me here, focus in, whose muscles still worked, but they stopped giving her information about her limbs. 
She wasn't paralyzed, but if she closed her eyes, she couldn't tell if she was standing, reaching, or resting. She couldn't walk because she didn't know where her legs were. Now, here's what he says. Gradually, by looking in mirrors and seeing her body rather than feeling it. Did you catch that? Looking, she could see, but she couldn't feel. She's looking at mirrors. She sees her limbs, though she can't feel them. She began to walk again. After much practice, walking began to feel natural again, but she had to learn a new way to live and move. And here's the point. In depression, the new way of living is to believe and act on what God says rather than feel what God says. It is living by faith. And that's what David does. You see, his experience is described by abandonment and anguish, and at the same time, there's this tension going back with trust and prayer. Go back to verse 3. Psalm 22, verse 3. He's just said, where are you, God? I'm forsaken. And he, he acknowledges, yet you are holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted you, and you did what? You delivered them. God, I don't sense you right now, but I look back, and I can see how you have worked. And so I'm, 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 I'm acting on faith in what you've done in the past right now. You have delivered them. To you they cried, and you rescued them. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David doesn't say, all right, so I'm going to put my trust in you, but you see here this tension between experiencing the forsakenness of God and yet reflecting on and, and trying to fight for belief that God is a God who delivers and who rescues. It continues. Go on down. Look at, um, look at verses 9 through 11. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. He's just said, they're mocking me, I'm despised. And he stops and says, yet, okay, this is how I feel, but God, I remember you took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Here's what he's saying. God, you not only showed yourself faithful to Israel, you've been faithful to me from the very beginning. Hey, do you see what David's done here? Here's what happens. In, in the deepest, darkest moments of our life, what often happens is that we're listening to our own voices and our eyes cannot get off of our own surroundings. But what David's done has lifted his eyes up to see God. Take your eyes off of yourself and look to God. That's what needs to happen in the deepest, darkest moments. He's a God who rescues, who delivers, who has worked in the past, which will give you grace and faith to believe he will work in the future. Jump on to verse 19. Verse 19. 
This is getting close to the climactic, just turning point in this psalm. In verse 19, again, we see a a strong contrast. He's just said, they've divided my garments. I'm at the point of death. Verse 19, but you, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now we see those animals in reverse order. He had said bulls. He had said the lions and the dogs. Now he's talking about the, the dogs and, and, and the lions and the oxen. But let me zero in on this verse 21. After looking at it and studying it this week, um, I've got a different translation, the, the NET version, the net version, um, which I think is closer to what's going on here. And it says this, rescue me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then with an exclamation, a declaration, you have answered me. That's what's going on. He's going through all this and he's finally said, God's answered He's responded, he's rescued, and there's a declaration. This is a triumphant shout of what God has done. That's what David experienced. But David's experience and his suffering, God was using to point to a true and greater sufferer. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your Bibles now. And I want you to turn to Matthew 27. If you have one of the Bibles we've provided, that's in page 834. 834. Matthew 27. We're going to start reading in verse 35. And this is where we're going to see the suffering that Jesus the true and greater sufferer, the true and greater David, the true and greater sacrifice suffered for us. In verse chapter 27, verse 35, this is at the crucifixion. And as we read it, I want you to listen for the echoes of Psalm 22. It's as if if Psalm 22 is just being mirrored here right in the crucifixion. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. You heard that anywhere? It's what they just did to David. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. You hear the echoes? He's being mocked. 
He's being despised. They're wagging their heads at him just like they did David. And the same way with David when they said, David, you put your trust in the Lord. Where is he now? They say the very same thing to Jesus. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. Verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Like David, Jesus experienced physical agony. We didn't even talk about the verse where it talks about the hands and the feet. The nails are there, the crown of thorns on his head, and yet Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Rick Gamachi describes the crucifixion this way. He looks up to his father. His father looks back. But Jesus doesn't recognize these eyes. They pierce the invisible world with fire and darken the visible sky. And Jesus feels dirty. He hangs between earth and heaven, filthy with human discharge on the outside, and now filthy with human wickedness on the inside. The Father speaks, Son of man, why have you sinned against me and heaped scorn on my great glory? You are self-sufficient and self-righteous. You rob me of my glory and worship what's inside of you instead of looking out to the one who created you. You are greedy, lazy, gluttonous, slanderer, and gossip. You hate your brother and murder him with the bullets of anger fired from your own heart. You oppress the poor. You love money. You have no self-control. You are an anxious coward. You do not trust me. And your list of sins goes on and on and on and on. And I hate these things inside of you. I am filled with disgust and indignation for your sin consumes me. Son, now drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He downs every drop of the scalding liquid of God's own hatred of sin mingled with his white hot wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup. Omnipotent, 
hatred, and anger for the sins of every generation, past, present, and future. Omnipotent wrath directed at one naked man hanging on the cross. The father can no longer look at his beloved son, his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself. He looks away. Jesus pushes himself upward and howls to heaven, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence. Separation. Jesus whispers, I'm thirsty. And he sags. The merciful centurion soaks a sponge in sour wine and lifts it on a reed to Jesus' lips. And the sour wine is, in the, is the sweetest drink he ever tasted. Jesus pushes himself up again and cries, It is finished. And it is. Every sin of every child of God has been laid on Jesus and he drank the cup of God's wrath dry. Jesus was forsaken so that you wouldn't have to be. That is the good news of the gospel. That's why we exist as a church. Every single one of us, those list of sins, those are your sins and mine. And when he's crying out, why have you forsaken me? It's because God his, poured out his own wrath against sin on his son. Jesus said, I will die. I will suffer. Give them life. The good news of the gospel is if you look to Jesus and confess your sin and believe, that he paid the penalty for your sin. You turn from that sin to follow him. You don't get forsakenness. You get the presence of God in eternal life. Would you turn to Jesus today? Because if you don't, that will one day be your experience. Separation from God and silence for all of eternity. I plead with you, turn from your sin to the true and greater sufferer, the sacrifice of Jesus. He became sin for us. So we see his abandonment, we see his anguish, but we also see his trust and prayer. You know what? The Gospels don't make this explicit, but we know the rest of the story in Psalm 22. How does the psalm end? Is David forsaken forever? No, he's just cried out at the end of verse 21, you have answered me. And the rest of the psalm is a picture of global Worship, which means I believe when Jesus is crying out on the cross, and get this, even when you're in the deepest, darkest moments 
follow his example and go to God and cry out to him. Look, he already knows it. You can't hide it from him. So go and talk to him. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's verse one of Psalm 22. But also in Jesus, it is a confidence that God's gonna raise him from the dead. He's not gonna stay there. God's coming back. He is gonna give life And Jesus is going to rise. And because of his resurrection, you and I are going to experience life forever. And not just you and I, the nations. And so the last two points I want to turn to now, going back to Psalm 22. The first one is find salvation in the true and greater sacrifice. The second is worship the true and greater sacrifice. Sacrifice. Look at David's response here, and I, I'm going to have to cover these really quick. In verse 22, how does David respond? I will tell of, my, of your name to my brothers. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. He's not only praising him, he's inviting others. Join me in the praise of, of God and the great things that he has done. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in all of him. 24, actually jump on into verse 25. From you comes my praise in a great congregation. Now he's going public. He's not just talking about his praise. Let's talk about public worship here, corporate worship. We're gonna do this together. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And he gives the motivation the motivation is in, um, in verse 25. Sorry, verse 24, which says this. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. Our response to the great sacrifice of Christ is the same as David's. It's worship. It's mouths that are filled with praise. It's lives that stand in awe. It's those who gather together and invite others. How can you keep this to yourself? It's inviting others to join in the worship of our great God. After the gospel is laid out in Romans, this is what Paul says is the natural response. Many of you know it. I memorized it in my memory program as a kid. Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our response is, God, my body's not my own. I don't decide what I do with my hands anymore, with my feet anymore. God, you do. I don't decide what I do with my eyes, my mouth, my sexuality. You do. We respond in worship. And it's not out of legalism. It's out of love. How could you not respond and love because of, the, of what Jesus took for you. So we respond in worship. And then finally, the third truth is we proclaim the good news 
of the true and greater sacrifice. Look at verse 27. David continues, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The echo here is of Genesis chapter 3, that great covenant that God made with Abraham. You remember that? I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so Abraham and his offspring is traced all the way to David. And now David is crying out and looking way beyond himself and even his son Solomon to a greater David to come who was going to bring in the worship of the nations. This is why Jesus, after the resurrection and all the gospels, you know what he does? He has a conversation with the disciples. And what's he tell them to do? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. His sacrifice inaugurates the ingathering of the nations. And you know who the very first one is? We could go back to the Gospel of Matthew that we just read. Jesus has just cried out, It is finished. Who responds? The Roman centurion who just nailed him to the cross. A Gentile looks up and says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Go read through the Gospel of Mark. You don't see anybody confess that Jesus is the Son of God until the Roman centurion. Jesus' suffering, his crucifixion, is inaugurating now the nations. And you know what? The nations are going to be present this week at soccer night. And so we do what we do as a church, not just for Medford and greater Boston. It's so that the nations might hear and respond and worship. We continue, verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. We've already seen this. Tanner preached in Psalm 1 and 2. I've set my king on my holy hill and the nations shall respond to him. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Here's the deal, the rich and the poor. The prosperous and those who couldn't care for themselves, the afflicted, the torn apart, the dying, the sickly, those filled with anguish. There is no distinction with the gospel. Everyone is invited to come and eat and be satisfied. And then I love this. We'll conclude in verse 30 and 31. What's the picture? Posterity shall serve him. Posterity. Every succeeding generation. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Here's the cool thing about how the psalm ends. It's a vision of one generation committing to the next generation, committing to the next generation, committing to the next generation that God has done it. He has provided the one whom he has promised. 
come and worship. That's our responsibility. Who proclaims it? You and I do. This is the privilege we get as disciples of Christ is to praise him and proclaim him and invite all to worship. And so as I wrap our sermon up, I just, man, the invitation is clear. Find salvation in Jesus. Offer your life as a living sacrifice. Come and worship him. And let's leave today praising and proclaiming taking steps of faith with great courage. God, do this in us. God, we want to see the nation's worship. Use us, use our church, we pray. Let me, let me lead us in prayer. Father, your sacrifice in sending your son Jesus is amazing. My sin is great, but your grace is more. God, would you give us eyes to see our own sin? And would you help us to lift our eyes up to see your great provision for our sin and the sacrifice of your son? God, would you help us to respond in repentance and in faith, God, I pray for the person who really feels despised right now. I pray for the person sitting here that feels forsaken by God, for the person that really senses that God is far off. God, I, I pray you would, you would help them, like the lady whose limbs are not giving her information, that you would help them to, to learn a new way to live, a, a new way to live that walks by faith sees your word and believes your word even when they can't sense and feel you. And that God, as they do that, they would experience you. That they would be able to cry out with David, you have answered. You have rescued. You have delivered. God, would you do that today for us? I pray in Christ's name.